Hi, friend. On the Finding Something Real podcast, we listen to stories told by young women, hear questions or objections about God, and invite guests on to explore answers found in Jesus Christ. I am currently busy working with other people behind the scenes to create some awesome content for Season 7. During this preparation time, you are listening to a replay episode from Season 6. The episode you're about to listen to is one of several episodes recorded and dedicated to the young woman who's mentioned at the beginning of the episode, because it's her questions being addressed. In some cases, she even co-hosts these conversations with me. In this episode, challenged and encouraged me in my own faith journey, and whoever you are or wherever you're at with faith, I hope it does the same for you. This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Hello, welcome back, friend. Perhaps you already know this, but the Finding Something Real podcast is an intentional journey designed especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. As someone who's been through my own ups and downs with faith, I wanted to create a special place for people to process and address questions about God and Christianity. Finding something real is about finding restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Those are things I believe we all desire, that Jesus Christ has the ultimate answers for. You see, I don't just believe in Jesus because he's changed my life, although he has. I believe in him because he's radically real, and there's nothing better than him. So if you find that all hard to believe, I understand that. And if you're skeptical, hey, you've come to the right place. But I invite people to go on a journey with me. So today we're diving deeper into season six with questions curated by my co-host this month, Gaia from Italy. The way this podcast works is a little different than other podcasts. Here, every month we try to invite a different young woman to share her story, to talk about her questions. And then we invite on Christian guests who can address her honest questions or topics. So this month, you are listening to episodes curated by my friend Gaia. And in the first episode that aired a couple weeks ago, Gaia introduced herself and her Italian culture. She shared about her history with religion, and she talked about faith questions she is asking currently. Last week, we shared a deep discussion with Biola professor Dr. Eric Tonis. If you haven't already, I encourage you to take a listen to Eric and Gaia talking about God's character. I loved that conversation. Today's guest is going to dive into another topic that Gaia brought up in that first conversation, and that is the topic of sin. Although Gaia was unable to join in for this particular conversation, today's episode is a special one. Today's guest covers not just the issue of sin and what it is and why it matters and what Jesus did on the cross regarding that, but he also shares extensively on things like the resurrection, some specific passages in the Bible that are hard to understand, and he talks about the desire for authenticity. You know, I love all the conversations I get to have on this podcast, but this one stands out for me personally because today's guest gave me a lot to think about. At least three times in the course of our talk, I was thinking to myself, huh, I've never thought of it that way. And also, wow, I think that perspective really helps. 
So to today's guest who graciously provided content that made me do some serious reflection, and to Gaia who provided such an excellent topic for discussion, thank you. This episode is one of my favorites. And friend, we'll dive into today's conversation in just a moment, but first a few words regarding stuff that helps keep us on the air. Hi friend, this is Tara Catherine, assistant producer here of the Finding Something Real podcast. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. So please comment, subscribe, follow, like, share, all the things. And one of the biggest things you can do to help keep this podcast on the air is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your reviews. Your public feedback is a huge help to show others that we are not alone over here. So will you please do us a favor? As long as you're not driving right this minute, will you hit pause and go write a review? It won't take more than maybe 30 seconds of your time. Maybe you'll even hear your review on here in a future episode. This week, we would like to give a special thanks to reviewer Cindy Levia. Cindy says, so glad to have found this podcast that is real and raw. Thank you, Cindy, and thank you, listener, in advance for helping tell others about this podcast by leaving your review. Hi, friend. This podcast is sponsored in part by Faithful Counseling. Life is full of ups and downs, unexpected twists and turns, and sometimes we struggle with all that can come our way. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist who is also a practicing Christian. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And as someone with a master's degree in counseling psychology and whom at various times in the past 20 or so years has benefited from seeing a professional therapist, I know the value that professional counseling can bring because we all need someone to talk with and Faithful Counseling can help. Please visit faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real to sign up for professional faith-based counseling. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. There's also a special offer for Finding Something Real listeners to get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for being a sponsor of this episode. Well, have you ever wondered, friend, about sin? What it is, why it matters, and if there are some sins that are so bad, they're just unforgivable. If so, you're going to want to listen to today's episode. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And friend, you are listening in for season six, where we are starting off each month with a different young woman sharing her faith story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. This month, we are featuring conversations with or for a young woman named Gaia from Italy. If you've listened to our episodes this month, you know Gaia had a lot of questions about faith. And in the episodes we've recorded for this month, which we'll link in the show notes, Gaia has shared questions she has about God's character, suffering, sexuality, and sin. And she's also shared her faith journey. Um, I really appreciate Gaia's vulnerability and um, just the sweetness that she brings to these conversations. I just got done recording with her, and she couldn't make it to this recording right now, but she wished that she could. She said she listened to it later. Um, But I've really appreciated the questions she's brought up, including the one that I started this podcast with today, which is a sin question. Is there a sin that can separate you from God's love? Um, 
So I'm super excited for today's special guest. Formerly, he was a pastor of apologetics at Desert Springs Community Church in Goodyear, Arizona, an associate professor at Mission Bible Institute and host of Christ Culture and Coffee, a weekly apologetics podcast. He is now a speaker for an organization called Stand to Reason, and having earned a Master's of Divinity from Phoenix Seminary, and a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University, this guest has a passion for equipping the church with good reasons to believe in classical Christianity. He also has been married to his wonderful wife, Kelly, for over 13 years, and together they are raising four amazing kids. I am excited to welcome Robbie Lashua (laughs) to the Fighting Something Real podcast. Robbie, did I get your name right? You got it. No, that's totally it. Lashua. That's how you say it. You didn't mess really? it up. All your fears are alleviated. You did it right. Yeah. I, thanks, Chanel. I really paused there for a moment because I made some notes and I was like, mm, I'm just going to go for it. <laughs> it's one of those things too, where you're like, I know I asked, but you get it jumbled in your head. Which way does it go? No, you, you nailed it. Okay. Lashua. That okay. is how you say it. Good. Lashua. Yeah. So, Robbie, tell us a little bit about your ministry. Um, we've had Greg Coco on this podcast uh, a while ago, but I'd love to hear more about Stand to Reason and what you're doing over there. Yeah. So Stand to Reason is an apologetics parachurch organization. Uh, we specialize in giving Christians a reason to believe in, in what they believe in. We give confidence and uh, help people develop three things. Uh, we want people to be ambassadors for Christ. And we believe that those are the three areas of being a good ambassador are knowledge, wisdom, and character. And when we represent Jesus and we're his ambassadors to this world, those are the three things we need to focus on. And so we try to teach uh, a lot of knowledge on apologetics and how to defend your faith and arguments for Christianity and arguments against other worldviews. Um, But we also teach how to go about talking with people about it because you don't want to beat people up with the truth. And you can have all this knowledge and be terrible at communicating it. So we also want to be wise about how we communicate it. But we also need to package it in uh, a a wrapper that looks like Jesus. And that's where character comes into play. So who who we are and how we present and um, how we act towards people is very important, as well as the truth we communicate. So that's what we're about. We have, you know, all the stuff. We have podcasts, articles. We do six youth conferences a year. I'm in charge of this thing called Outposts, which is like chapter groups in local churches that teach Stand to Reason apologetics uh, courses uh, from everything, you know, from homosexuality to what apologetics is to the resurrection of Jesus, all of those types of things. So we've got about 65 of these um, outposts across the country and actually the world. We have we have a few in Canada, we got a few in the UK, and we have one in Africa, which is pretty cool. So I'm over that, and then I develop content, and I speak uh, around the country, and I help plan our conferences, and uh, yeah, I do I do whatever else they want me to do, basically. So, Wow. How did that happen for you? How did you get involved with this particular ministry? Oh, man. I still don't believe it, to be honest with you. Um, what happened was... Um, I really liked apologetics when I was in college, and I started listening to Greg Kokel's podcast when I got my first iPod. Remember those? Um, yeah, it was like 2004, <laughs> like the big, fat, thick ones, you know, with the dial. I had that, and, and Greg was already on um, podcasts. He he already was putting his broad his radio show on podcasts. So I'd listen every week. I'd you know you'd have to download it. There was no streaming or anything, so I'd plug it into my computer and download it. 
And uh, I just started loving it. And so after I graduated, I became a youth pastor for 10 years. And then I was an associate pastor of apologetics. And throughout that time, you know, Greg really uh, discipled me from afar uh, through his podcast and through his ministry. And I got involved with other guys at Stand to Reason and did some mission trips with them. Um, and anyway, uh, after being pastor of apologetics for five years. It was during COVID. I was hiking a lot out here in Arizona and just praying about what God wants me to do with my life when I grow up. And um, I really thought I need to start an apologetics ministry in Arizona because there's nothing here, you know? And so I was talking with my friends at Stand to Reason about how you run the organization. I talked with my pastor I was working for. Um, everybody was like, this is awesome. This is what you need to do. And then um, my friend Alan at STR, he was coaching me on how that looks and what the organizational structure is, you know, all that stuff. So I was, I was going full force with it. I was getting my nonprofit status and website and branding, you know, all that stuff. And uh, about four months into that, uh, Alan from Santa Reason calls me up and he says, Hey, you know, I've been talking with Greg here about what you're going to do. And we just want to know if you'd be open to a conversation about maybe coming to work for us instead of recreating a new thing. Uh, you can just do ministry under our umbrella. Okay. And I am not kidding you, Janelle. It made me physically dizzy. Like the room was spinning. Cause in my mind, I'd never in my wildest dreams thought I could work for Standard Reason. I've admired them for, you know, a few decades and um, it blew my mind. So I, I, I talked to my wife about it, talked to my pastor and they were both like, yeah, see what they have to say. They came out to my house uh, and they pitched to me what they want this to look like. So, I mean, in my head, I'm like, Greg Kokel is driving from California to my house outside of Phoenix to ask me to work for him. It blew my mind. So they were telling me where they're going, what they want. And uh, my wife and I just knew like, yeah, this is definitely the direction that, that we need to go. So I started working there in July of 2022 because I told my church I would continue the, the whole year and work there for them. And uh, so, yeah, I've been there over a year now and it's just been awesome. And I can't believe I'm doing it. And my five-year plan is not to screw it up. That's what <laughs> my goal is. So. Oh, man. Well, yeah. that's amazing. And you're also teaching at a college as well, which is amazing. Um, tell us about your faith journey. Have you always been passionate about giving reasons for Christianity? And just for the sake of somebody listening who's not familiar with the term apologetics, would you mind hashing that out just a little bit? Yeah, sure. So apologetics, uh, it comes from the Greek word apologia, or, you know, the super nerds will say it's apologia. Who knows how to say it? Um, but it comes from 1 Peter 3.15, which where Peter says that we need to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the hope we have, yet with gentleness and respect. And the word defense is the word apologia. So it's a defense for what you believe, a defense for Christianity, a logical case that has evidence and reasons for why you believe what you believe. So that's all apologetics means is uh, reasons and evidence for your beliefs. Um, and so, yeah, I've been passionate about it probably since I was a kid. Uh, it always struck me that like whatever you're believing in needs to be real. Like it's not a fairy tale. And so I grew up in the church. Um, my grandpa moved from the Bay Area to this little town in, in Arizona. It's called Pine, Arizona. No one's ever heard of it. There's 3,000 people there, super small. And he moved from, yeah, San Francisco out there to pastor a church in the 70s. And so my mom and dad met there in this little town and I was born there and I grew up there and um, both grandparents were believers, 
parents were believers, siblings, you know. And um, I remember when uh, I was four and a half, this is bizarre, it was the summer of 1988, and I was at Vacation Bible School, and the pastor gave the gospel, and he asked if anybody wanted to believe in Jesus. And I'd heard about it, you know, my parents and grandparents had taught this to me, and I, I recognized, yeah, I do bad things. I do things that are wrong, and I need help with that, because if we're if we're guilty before God because we've done one bad thing, I've done a lot of bad things. So that day I, I trusted in the Lord and um, was baptized, I don't know, probably like six, seven months later by my grandpa and in the church that he physically built, which is kind of cool. Um, and so I've grown up in the church. I, I was a good kid in youth group. I didn't like rebel. And um, now again, the majority of the sin in my life I've done as a Christian, right? Because I got saved when I was four. So I've done bad things, but um, I didn't ever walk away. I didn't have a time of of questioning the whole thing. But I always thought if this thing's true, there has to be evidence for it. There has to be proof for it. And um, one of the things about Northern Arizona, where I'm from, is um, all of it is pretty much founded by Mormons. Uh, because Brigham Young sent Mormons north and south when it was still Mexico. Um, because they were trying to make a line in the country because they wanted to make the West Coast Mormon land. And so sending, you know, people south from Salt Lake bleeds into northern Arizona. So my town was founded by Mormons, and there's a Mormon ward there, and a lot of my friends growing up were, were LDS. And so I remember as a kid having discussions with them about truth and about what Joseph Smith said versus what the Bible teaches and is the Book of Mormon true? And all of those types of things were just stuff that we did. Um, because we wanted to know what was real and what was true. And so as I got into college, um, I thought, man, I got to study this stuff more because if Islam's true, I'm going to follow it. Uh, if atheism's true, I'm going to live according to it because I'm going to live according to what's real. Mm. And um, through studying and through investigating and through asking hard questions, I had just become more and more convinced that Christianity's the real deal. No, no other worldview answers the questions of the universe and of the experiences that we have in the world uh, better than Christianity does. And so that's that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, uh, my upbringing and my faith journey. And yeah, I like school. You know, you read all that stuff. I'm a super nerd. So I like going to school and uh, it's fun to learn about the world that God's created. But I do like talking to people who don't believe in Christianity because I want to know their reasons. And, and I honestly go into it with an open mind. Every time that I have um, Mormons uh, over to my house, I invite them over. You can order them online. I don't know if you know that, um, but <laughs> no, I do I that. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, because they, you know, the missionaries, they're all over. So you can yeah. order them and they'll come to your house. I do it a lot. But I always tell them, hey, listen, <laughs> if Mormonism's true, I'm in. Like, I want to be a Mormon. I, yeah. I, I'll follow it if it's real, right? Yeah. And whatever's real, I want to follow. And so I love engaging with people that have different views and thinking through the reasons and evidence for both of our beliefs. Yeah, yeah. So what are the topics you find yourself talking about the most when you're talking mm. to Mormons or to non-believers? What gets you the most excited about talking about Christianity with those folks? Well, pers personally, the most exciting thing to talk about is the resurrection of Jesus. If that happened, Christianity is legit. Uh, and if it didn't happen, the whole thing's a sham and I'm an idiot for following it. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So um, that's it, like to me. And now I study other stuff. I love talking about other things. We need to know the truth. We need to have knowledge of the truth, but we also have to have knowledge of the error so we can go out and help Mormons and Muslims and atheists see where their thinking doesn't line up with reality. But um, I love the resurrection and I'm developing this 
this tactic. I've been trying it out for a few years now where I just try to hijack every conversation I can to the resurrection because if somebody believes in the resurrection, then Christianity follows. So this is what I do. My atheist friend will say, why do you believe that a God exists? And I'll say, because a dude who rose from the dead said God exists. What what credibility do you have? Like, what have you done? You didn't rise from the dead. This guy seems better to go with. And then what they say is, wait a second, why do you think he rose from the dead? Now I can talk about the resurrection and the apologetics behind that. Because if he really did rise from the dead, he said there's a God that exists and he would know better than us. If he really rose from the dead, the morality of the Bible is true, right? If he really rose from the dead, there was a flood and Noah was a real historical person. And so was Adam. And Jonah actually got swallowed by a big fish. All the things Jesus says are now legitimate because of the the stamp of validity of the resurrection. And so I just love talking about the resurrection because I think it answers all the other questions if somebody comes to believe it. Plus, it's the gospel. I, I, I got tired of talking with atheists about God's existence, which I think is important, and we've got great, great arguments for it. The cosmological argument, teleological, the moral argument, they're all phenomenal, and Christians should know them. But I got tired of arguing about that because it'd be like, you know, hours and hours and hours. And I thought, even if I convince them that God exists, they're still not saved. Mm-hmm. Muslims think God exists, you know? And so I thought, man, there's got to be a better methodology I got to develop to get to the gospel. And so that's one thing I've been practicing. And it's not obviously the only method, but I love talking about the resurrection because it's where our best evidence lies. And it's the most important thing about our faith. So I kind of just want to cut through all the extra stuff and go to the most important thing. Mm. Well, I am going to hijack this conversation a little bit since Guy is sure. not here. And it, uh, it's interesting that you brought that up. So I started doing a Becky Pippert Bible study with some girls here locally. Um, Becky Pippert wrote um, a number of books uh, for evangelism. She's a well-known evangelist, uh, spoken to a lot of different college students. And she creates Bible studies that are easy um, for people who have no background in, in Christianity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I had some girls over the other day, uh, some of them with some Christian context, some with none uh, from different countries and different things. And um, one of them who grew up in this country, but whose parents are not believers, she she looks, we're talking about the Gospel of John, and she goes, what if it just was all made up and all of this is just a sham made to just, you know, um, trick a bunch of people why mm-hmm. why do i why should you believe all of this now yeah. robbie i it's really hard for me to call myself an apologist <laughs> although i'm getting more comfortable with it because i've been like yeah, invited sure. to do some apologetics so i did the best i could um and later i got some feedback that it was you know it was well presented however mm-hmm. i would love to hear how you would respond to something like that and for somebody listening um, what you would say if that argument came up to you. Sure. So I thought about this a lot and I've heard this a lot. And one of the things that stand to reason that we like to do is, is come with a tactical approach. And so we ask questions, right? And say, okay, well, what do you mean made up? Like who, who made it up? Right. And then depending on her question, we navigate. And so I, I always would start with questions. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Because, she, but she's just kind of saying a what if, right? It's not, she has evidence for it. And right. so I would try to lead her down a, a path to see this is just an idea that is possible. 
But is it plausible? Because I have evidence that that pushes us the other direction. And one thing, again, there's so much you could talk about, but one of my one of my go-tos, especially with younger people to talk about, is this idea about um, uh, superheroes, because I think that this is really helpful. So one thing that I ask them is I'd say, okay, listen, the, excluding the Bible, who who do you think the most powerful people of all time are that really exist or that humans have created in their imaginations? And, you know, the list is always like Alexander the Great, um, Hitler, um, Thor, Superman, Spider-Man, right? You just list, okay, some historical, some fictional. Great. Then I say, who who are the most humble and selfless um, real historical characters of all time or fictional? And the only two that ever get listed are uh, Mother Teresa and Gandhi, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, what about fictional? And I don't know. And it's because we don't write about those kinds of characters because they're not cool and they don't sell books, you know? Um, so, okay. So we got we got selfless and humble. We've got powerful. Now, including the Bible, let's just pretend it's a, a fictional book, hmm. uh, like like this girl saying. So I'll grant her her premise. It's fictional. You know, according to this book, who who's the most powerful person in this book? Jesus. Okay, yeah, that's right. And what are the claims, the fictional claims that this book makes about Jesus? Well, it says that um, nothing came into being except through him, and apart from him, nothing exists, right? John 1 says that. Hebrews says that. And so what that's saying is, as a fictional character, su Superman can fly through space really fast. Jesus created space and Superman, fictionally, right? So just <laughs> as a character, Jesus is more powerful than Superman or Thor or Alexander the Great or any of these people, right? He raises the dead. He tells the wind and the waves to stop. He has control over animals because of the fish. He, I mean, as a fictional character, he's more powerful than anybody who really existed and even anybody that humans could dream up in their imagination. He's at the top. You can't get beyond that. Um, then the same goes for selfless and humble. Jesus is it, right? He 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 came. He says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Uh, Jesus never uses his supernatural powers on himself. He'll he'll, you know, multiply bread and fish for five thousand people, but he won't turn stones into bread for himself. He always is using it for others. He's always healing others. And th they even mocked him for this, right? Mm -hmm. Like he healed others. Why can't he heal himself? Because he wouldn't because he came to serve and to be a sacrifice on our behalf. And so as a fictional character, Jesus is the most selfless and humble and most powerful in all of human literature ever. And I don't think that's disputable. Like, like you can't point out one. Some people will say, well, Aslan from Narnia, but Aslan is <laughs> copying Jesus, right? Like right. that's that's what, that's what C.S. Lewis is doing. So here's the punchline to the setup, right? I look at him and I say, you're telling me that some Galilean fisherman came up with the greatest fictional character of all time? Not Shakespeare, not Dante, not Homer. Peter? You think <laughs> Peter came up with the greatest fictional character of all time? That's really hard for me to believe. Mm. Because these guys, you know, 90% of Palestine at the time of Christ was illiterate. So how is it that they that seems kind of miraculous to be honest? I think a better explanation is that these fishermen and tax collectors just wrote down what they saw. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any way that they could have come up with somebody like that. 
Yeah. And so that that's an argument, right? There's so many different ones. I was going to say, can that's a great her. one. I haven't heard that one before, and I'm going to steal it, Robbie. I'm stealing steal it. that one. I stole it. I stole it from Tom Gilson. Uh, he said it at some conference years ago. It's sort of in that. I've, I've tweaked it a little, but I gather. No, it's great. I gather. Though. <laughs> yeah, it's helpful, you know, and, and th there's but there's so much evidence that Christianity is true. Um, now, you can't prove it 100 percent. Right. But that the resurrection, I, I just taught um, I was up in Portland last week teaching on the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And um, there are these facts of history. Michael Icona talks about this, that are facts. And then you have to say what event happened to make these things fact. Uh, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Everybody admits that because non-Christians wrote about it in the first and second century. So, mm -hmm. so she can't say this is all fictional because non-Christians wrote about it. Um, his disciples believed he rose and they were willing to die for that belief. Paul converted, which makes zero sense because he was an enemy of the cross. But then the one that blows my mind the most is Jesus' brother, James. Mm -hmm. And I think as Christian apologists, we haven't mined the, the evidence of this enough. So think about this. Um, before the resurrection, Jesus's brother thought he was nuts. There's that passage that says he thought he'd lost his mind and he came to take him away, right? Uh, there's the other passage where it says that Jesus was the Jews were seeking Jesus' life in Judea. So he was in Galilee and his brothers come to him and they, they basically say, hey, big shot, if you want to be known and you want to show all your magic tricks to everybody, why don't you go to the big city where you can be known? Why are you hiding out in our small town? And, you know. And uh, then it says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Hmm. They're basically telling him, go over there where they want to kill you, man. Like, if you are who you say you are, get out of here. Yeah. And Jesus tells them, no, I'm not going. And, and he kind of argues back with them because they didn't believe in him. So you, you have these four brothers of Jesus who don't believe in him. James being the, the next oldest to Jesus. He's Mary and Joseph's first biological child. And um. Then after the resurrection, that James becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem and dies for the belief that his brother's God. So I ask my friends, I say, what could your brother do to convince you that he's God? <laughs> right? It's kind of a crazy question. What yeah. could they do? My brother can never convince me he's God. And do you know what, Janelle? Even if my brother came back from the dead, it wouldn't convince me he's God. Mm. And we have examples of this in scripture. Do you remember Lazarus came back from the dead? Right. Did Mary and Martha think he was God? No. Yeah, right. Um, Jairus' daughter came back from the dead. He didn't think she was God. The widow's son gets risen from the dead. She doesn't think he's God. Mm -hmm. So um, why did Jesus' brother believe he was God and be willing to go from a place of disbelief? I'm not a disciple. I'm not at your crucifixion to now becoming the head of the church in Jerusalem and dying for that belief. I think there's two things that had to have happened. One, Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to James, which is what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. But the other thing is this, and I think this is amazing. Um, the reason I wouldn't believe that my brother's God if he rose from the dead is because me and my brother did a lot of bad things together growing up. <laughs> right? Right. It's true. I had a front row seat to my brother's depravity, and he had a front row seat to my depravity, and we hid things from our mom and dad, right? Right. That's what siblings do. So my mom and dad still to this day don't know some bad stuff that we did. Sorry, mom, but they don't. 
But my brother, he knows everything because that's the relationship. You can't hide it from them. And and you cooperate with each other, right? You cover for each other. Hey, tell mom this. Hey, lie about that. Hey, I tell him I was home on time. All that stuff. Right. That's what James and Jesus's relationship would have been had they both been normal. But Jesus wasn't. And so now James has this older, perfect brother who's sinless, and that would just drive you nuts. Like it'd be the worst thing in the world to have Jesus as a sibling because your parents (laughs) would always be comparing you to him and you literally can't live up to being perfect. It would be awful. And he wouldn't lie for you. He wouldn't cover. And so you would grow up hating this goody two shoes brother that nobody thinks you're as good as, especially if you were the next oldest, that sibling rivalry thing. That's a real thing. That happens to to a lot of people. And so what we know about James from history, Eusebius writes about this, and he quotes Hegesippus. But James, uh, he grew his hair really long. He didn't drink wine. He didn't eat meat. It seems like he wanted to be more like his cousin John the Baptist Mm -hmm. than he wanted to be like his older brother Jesus. And we see siblings do this all the time, right? Like the oldest sibling's a skater. And then the the second one's like, I'm not going to be like them. I'm my own person. I'm going to be a cowboy or I'm going to be goth or whatever, right? (laughs) And so that's what seems like happened with with James is he takes a Nazarite vow. He lives a life of Judaism really well, so much so that even Josephus says that he's called James the Just because he followed the Old Testament law so well. He -hmm. prayed all the time. He seems to be this legit jew who really cares about judaism and yet he believed his brother was god and got killed for it Mm -hmm. so if you're a really strict jew and you believe the torah you believe the prophets you know that god is holy 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 that's what isaiah says you know that he's blameless that there's no sin in him right Mm -hmm. and in order for James, to believe his brother was God, he'd also have to know he was sinless. But sinlessness alone would just make you hate the guy. But then if that guy rose from the dead, those two things together would compel you that your brother is God. So I think that is such a crazy argument that Jesus's family believed he was God. It, you can trick your disciples. You, you can trick followers. We see cult members do that all the time. But to trick your family that you grew up with who were hostile to you before your death and then converted and were martyred themselves, it makes no sense unless something happened to them. And wow. so again, there's so much evidence about the resurrection. I think it's phenomenal to get into. But those are some of the things I would tell her is this can't be made up because we have non-Christian sources about it. And you're putting a lot of faith in Peter to make up such a great story. And not only once, but four times, right? Because then Matthew has to make up more. And then um, John has to make up some more. And Luke has to add some more. That just sounds a little crazy to me. Uh, These eyewitness testimonies hold water. um, And I think that they are writing down accurate history. So those are some of the things that I, I would say. Well, that was amazing. And next time I have a young woman ask me about the resurrection, I'm contacting your organization. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Yep. It's amazing. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask, because Gaia brought it up, um, she was asking if God would accept someone who has made a huge mistake and are there sins that God cannot forgive. But before we get to that... I want to ask if you, Robbie, if you are finding that you get asked about sin very often, is sin a topic that young people today seem uh, interested in discussing? Um, Because I think some of the narrative I hear in Christian circles would be, 
nobody talks about sin anymore. Nobody talks mm-hmm. about the need for repentance anymore. Um, is this something that you feel like as an apologist that you touch on a lot? Well, um, yes and no. So I wouldn't say I have a lot of young people come up to me and say, you know, what are sins that God doesn't like, or is this a sin, things like that. Um, But more often what they ask for is um, what's allowed, right? Mm -hmm. What does God allow? And that in a way is asking about sin because what he doesn't allow is crimes against him and sin. And really, I think though, it's not coming from a theological standpoint. It's coming from a personal feelings, personal preference standpoint, or they feel guilty about something they've done and they want you to give them permission that it's okay. As if my permission would make them not feel guilty. I mean, it won't, right? Um, But I think that's more of where it's coming from. So I do think people are asking about sin, but they don't use the word, but that's what's going on in their heart. Um, now, again, I, I've heard you know a lot of people say nobody in the pulpit's talking about sin. My, my pastor talks about sin all the time, um, <laughs> and it's it's vital. Like we have to talk about it. It's a reality in humanity. And when we see people ignore this factor of of the brokenness in all of us, then we get stupid. Um, I don't want to say stupid. Then we get dumb ideas that come about and and bad solutions to the problem. Like like with all of this stuff on racism, you know, um, nobody talks about it's a sin problem in people's hearts. It's prejudice is what it is. It's, there's one race, right? And there's different ethnicities, but it's a prejudice problem. And that stems from inside of us, not not because of societal factors on the outside, right? But nobody's talking about that. So we'll never actually be able to affect it because the gospel has to be the thing that transforms us from the inside out to view people as image bearers of God, no matter what their skin color or their cultural background is. And so um, to ignore it really just damages us. But I do think a lot of young people are asking about it because they want to know, one, what does God say about my thoughts and feelings, especially in sexual perversion stuff? Or why do I feel bad about doing this thing that I don't think's bad? Mm-hmm. Which is a really weird conviction, right? <laughs> like, yeah, why do I feel guilty about something that I'm fine with? Well, it's because we were made with a conscience and God put the law in our hearts and we know mm-hmm. what's right and wrong because of the type of being that we are. So yeah, I do think they talk about it. It's just, you got to it's kind of in a roundabout way. It's more an experiential way. Friend, if you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding Something Real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here, that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. So we use Patreon. And if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts and they will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation I had when I was 
just a little girl. I think I was nine or 10. I went to this Bible camp and we were sitting around and our camp counselor, she was probably, I don't know, in her late teens. She was in charge of all of us, you know, nine and 10 year olds. And mm-hmm. she was talking about, uh, you know, the gospel. And I said something about people going to hell if they didn't believe. And she goes, Janelle, we don't, we don't need to use that word. <laughs> Just Wow. <laughs> I mean, I never heard a Christian uh, say we don't use the word hell, right? Um, yeah. But I do hear, I mean, you know, even Christians tiptoeing around the idea of does God call this a sin or, you know, yeah. it, what is this? Um, but I want to take it back a little bit. For somebody listening who the idea of sin is just foreign to them, would you mind, Robbie, sharing what is sin and what does the Bible have to say about it? Yeah, so sin is missing the mark. It is going against the way God designed human beings to be. It's breaking God's moral law. Um, And his moral law is not something he just decided one day. It stems from his character. So it's anchored in in who he is. And uh, he created us in his image. And so to live our lives in line with what we were designed to do is what God ultimately wants. And so um, it's not that God is a fun sucker or he's trying to just come down hard on us for dumb, arbitrary things, but he says certain things are bad for us because they're actually bad for us. <laughs> and he cares. He's He's trying to help in our broken state because of the fall of Adam and Eve and the bad choice they made. Uh, all of us are broken and we are infected with sin. It's a hereditary thing that we've all inherited. And so God in his grace tells us how to direct our lives according to what he intentionally made us to be so that we can live um, in in light of that, which is the most healthy thing for us to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that that's basically what sin is, is, is God's view on morality in the way he designed us to be. He's the creator, I'm the creation, and he knows how I operate best. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's kind of the idea with with what it is, and and when we when we go against that, sin is a crime against God. It's breaking of His law, which is a you know a criminal offense. Mm-hmm. So, Robbie, I'm sure you get this question sometimes, um, and I I wanted to ask it because I think it has to do with God's character related to sin. Um, and I'd love to ask it here because I don't know if we've ever addressed this on the podcast, but if God created everything as the creator, mm-hmm. including the fallen angels, did God create evil or sin? Mm-hmm. No, he didn't because he can't. Um, and so this gets into like what your definition of evil is. And this is really important. Like when I ask somebody what's evil, they'll point out uh, examples, cancer, infant death, but I, and then I always tell them, no, no, those are just examples of it. But like, what's the actual thing? Like when we're talking about evil, what is it? And when you get down to it and you really think through it, and I, I didn't come up with this, you know, Augustine talks about this, philosophers have been talking about this forever. Evil is the lack of good. You can't have evil unless there's already a thing that's good. And we know that God created everything good in the beginning, right? He makes this and it's good, 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 very good. And evil is the destruction of the good. It's the lack of good. So some people will say, you know, it's like a shadow. Um, Shadow is not a thing in and of itself. It's the blocking of light. You can't have a shadow without light already there. So we can't have evil without good. So it's it's deprivation or it's it's rust on a car. You can't have rust unless there's the car, right? 
And so um, God can't create uh, things that um, aren't things. Evil's not a thing. It's the lack of a thing. God makes things, right? Therefore, God didn't create evil. The Bible's clear that God can't do evil. He can't tempt. He can't lie. You know, so when we sing songs at church, you know, there's nothing that our God can't do. That's not technically true. He tells us a lot of things he can't do, but those are bad things, right? He can't do bad things and he can't do illogical things. So, um, no, God didn't create sin or evil, but he did allow the possibility for us to choose to go against him, for us to choose the lack of good. Mm-hmm. And he also he also created the possibility for angels to do that, which is what Satan has done and what demons have done. Yeah. So the garden, Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. Mm-hmm. We've got a sin problem. What's God's solution for our sin issue that now fills our world with evil and all sorts of crazy stuff? Well, the solution is that I think it's really interesting. So the only person who can forgive sin or forgive a crime is the person who the crime was committed against, right? So like if I stole your purse and then um, your friend forgave me for that, well, that's not real forgiveness because you have to forgive me. Like she's not in a position to forgive. You're the only one who can forgive the transgression against you. So God's the only one who can forgive all the crimes against him. Um, But the other problem that we have is that we need somebody to represent us because we are the guilty party who needs to be punished. So for God to be just, he has to punish humans. Uh, He can't, he can't take out his aggression on somebody else. Like, can you imagine like if one of my kids does something and then I punish the other one for it, that's injustice. So he can forgive, but we also have to have somebody that represents us take our punishment. And the reason some people say, well, couldn't God just have like wiped it away? He can't do that because then he'd be a divine enabler, right? And we all know that enabling isn't healthy for anybody just to wink at somebody's drug addiction or or to help them along with whatever addiction they have. That's not healthy and that doesn't change anything. And so God, being the one who can forgive, but also being the one who needs justice met, decided that he himself would come here and take the punishment on himself by becoming a human living a perfect life that none of us did, and then dying for our sin. And so what Jesus did on the cross was he died to pay the penalty of all of my wrongs and crimes and thoughts that go against God's law. And not just mine, but everybody in the whole world for all time. And then once we trust that he did that for us, not only is our past guilt forgiven, are we brought from a zero, you know, billion dollar negative balance in our account to zero, But then his perfect life that he lived on our behalf gets applied to us. So now I'm qualified for heaven because not only is my debt paid, but now I'm 100% perfect in God's eyes because Jesus's righteousness gets applied to me. He's my entry into that. And so that's, that's God's solution is that he sent somebody to take our punishment, to live the life we didn't, to qualify us for heaven. And then the currency that he works with us in is trust. He doesn't want our money or our time or our church attendance. He wants us to trust him that he did that for us, which is awesome because trust is something every human being in all times and all places can actually do. 
Wow. So well, there's follow-up questions to that. I'm um, sure you've heard that before though, Janelle, right? Like you're familiar <laughs> with the gospel. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I am, yeah. but I, you know what, Robbie, every chance I get, I want it to be featured on this podcast because I figure yeah. maybe someday, you know, who knows, somebody's going to come across this. They're, they're going to go, oh, I want to know the answer to that question about sin. And oh, I don't just get to hear the answer about that particular, whatever it is, although sin, I think would be very hard to address without talking about the gospel. Sure. But, you know, I want them to hear the gospel message because like what you're saying, it's just that trust issue. But for mm -hmm. somebody listening who's like, well, then why wouldn't I just keep on sinning? I mean, I trust mm -hmm. Jesus and then I'm just going to, because let's get to the question. Are there any sins that are so big that God will not forgive them? Well, a couple of things. One first that I want to say is you, you alluded to, well, if I just become a Christian, I can keep doing whatever I want. And Paul actually thought people would think the same thing. And that's why he says it in Romans. So should we just keep sinning that grace can abound? And the cool thing is the gospel is so free. And Jesus literally did everything that that thought is kind of what people conclude about it. Wait a second. So you're saying I can just do whatever I want and Jesus forgives it? Yeah, that's totally what Paul's saying. But then he says, we shouldn't live like that. And now why shouldn't we live like that? Well, there's a billion reasons. One is it's kind of just spitting on what Jesus did and not appreciating it. Um, secondly, it's bad for us to live a life of sin. Um, Jesus's brother James in his book, James, wrote that, you know, when, when, um, when tempt it's not temptation, what am I thinking of? It is when desire is conceived it brings forth sin and when sin is fully grown it brings forth death mm -hmm. sin kills us fast and so you could live a life of depravity and it will kill you fast and i know uh non-christians that have died young because they've lived a life totally raging against what god says and I know Christians who have died because they are living against what God says. Um, it's bad for all people to go against the way we were designed to be. And so that, that's one reason. But does God forgive us? And, and does Jesus actually die for the sins of everybody? Is there some sin that he didn't cover? Um, the short answer to that is no. There is no sin that he didn't cover. Anything you could ever do or I could ever do to break God's law, Jesus took our punishment for it on the cross, and that's it. Now, one thing that will come up is, well, wait a second, Robbie. In Matthew 12 and in Mark 3 and in Luke 12, there's the unpardonable sin, right? Mm -hmm. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So do you want to talk about that? Is that yeah, where you kind of want absolutely. to go with this? Absolutely, okay. yes. Let's, so let's let me just talk read. I'll read the Matthew version, okay? So uh, the context of this is the Pharisees just said that Jesus was doing miracles by the power of Satan. And then Jesus runs a, it's called a reductio ad absurdum. He shows them how stupid their argument is. And he's like, wait a second, why would Satan be fighting against himself? That makes no sense. You don't attack your own army in order to win a fight. You attack the other army. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. Then right after that, so this is in the same um, uh, same setting, what Jesus is talking, he goes directly into this. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. And then he repeats it again. It's a rabbinical parallelism. 
He says, whoever speaks a word against the son of man, so anybody who trash talks me, Jesus, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. All right, so we have to deal with what in the world is the unpardonable sin. So I just said, no, every sin that anybody can commit, Jesus covered. And yet Jesus says, no, there's one sin that is unforgivable, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when we look at the context of this, who is he talking to? When he says you, he's talking to the Pharisees that just accused him of being possessed by Satan in order to do miracles. Which is really interesting because they're admitting he's doing miracles, which I think is fascinating, right? So the enemies of Jesus admit he did miracles, which is interesting. But they were saying he was doing them empowered by Satan. And he says, when you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus was doing miracles through, it was the Holy Spirit's power. When you attribute what the Holy Spirit's doing to Satan, that is an unforgivable sin. So the question for us, Janelle, becomes can you and I commit this sin? Mm. And some people would say, yes, if we attribute what the Holy Spirit's doing to Satan, then we can commit this sin. I don't think so. I don't think you and I can actually commit this. And, and there's debate on this amongst Christians, and I could be wrong about this. But he, here are my reasons why I don't think you and I can do this. Um, first of all, Jesus only says this before he dies on the cross. It is never mentioned after Jesus dies. None of the epistles talk about the unpardonable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And if this was something we could do, don't you think that they would have warned us to be really careful and not do it? Paul warns against sin all the time. He's telling the Corinthians all this stuff that they're doing, saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, right? If this was something we could do, it is um, really plausible to think that they would have warned us about it because they care about us and they don't want us to be unforgiven. So I don't think it's something that um, anybody can actually do. I think it was a specific sin that only could be committed watching what Jesus was doing and saying he was Satan in the face of all the evidence, in the face of what you knew prophecy said, in the face of blind people seeing and the dead being raised to say that's of Satan. I think Jesus is saying that is unforgivable, but it's only for that time. I, I have not seen the miracles of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I can't attribute what he did to Satan because I'm not there seeing it. Yeah. So I don't think anybody is actually in a position uh, to do this. Now, there were some atheists, oh man, this was a few years back, but there was this thing on YouTube called the Blasphemy Challenge. Did you see this? I think I heard about this, yes. Oh, it's hilarious. I mean, it's it's sad, but it's hilarious because it's all these atheists saying that they're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and they just record themselves on YouTube and they say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, that's not even what this passage is talking about. You know, all these people, I think they're sticking it to God. And I don't even think they're doing it. I don't think they're doing the thing Jesus is talking about. Well, that so, brings up an interesting point, though, because I have heard people say about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that that's to turn your back on God and to never receive the gift of salvation. But that's not mm -hmm. what you're saying. Have you heard that argument before? And do you dismiss it? Yes. For yeah, I've heard people say this, this is where it gets hard because I've heard and I, I used to think that I used to think, OK, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means not to believe in Jesus. 
But that is not what any of these passages say, right? The, the, the question wasn't that the Pharisees didn't believe in Jesus. They were even admitting he was doing miracles. The, the problem was they were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous power of the Spirit, to Satan. And so um, I don't think you and I are in a place to do that because we're not watching the Messiah do miracles and then being able to attribute it to Beelzebub. So I've heard people say that it just means not to believe in Jesus. Well, I don't I don't think that that's what it means um, contextually. I don't think you can get that out of there. What I think it means is a specific thing for a specific time. And mostly because if it was still something we could do, Peter and Paul and James, none of them warn us about it. You know, which is really weird. Like they would warn us about this if this was something that could possibly uh, still be done. But I don't think it's something that we can actually commit today. Um, but if it was possible, we definitely would have been uh, told about it. So, also, yeah. we have one thing too. We we have the opposite taught by the by the um, apostles in in First John one seven through nine i love this he says if we walk in the light as he's in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from all sin he doesn't say there's no parentheses except the unpardonable sin if you accidentally blaspheme the holy spirit he doesn't say that and then he goes on again and he, he says if we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves and the truth's not in us but if we confess our sins he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so this word all is used twice, cleanses from all sin, cleanses from all unrighteousness. If blaspheming the Holy Spirit was still on the table, I think he would have said it here, uh, but he doesn't. He just says, no, all of it can be forgiven. All of it can be cleansed because of the blood of Christ. Hmm. So going back to that trust thing, let's say somebody goes, well, sure, I believe in Jesus. I'm just going to keep on living my life. And when I get to heaven or, you know, at the end of my life when I die and he's there, great. I put my trust in you. Yeah. How would you respond to that, um, Robbie? Well, I've heard people say, people have literally said this to me. Um, <laughs> and so there's a few, there's a few things that I would respond with. Number one, I would say, listen, you're acting like, you know, when you're going to die. You could get hit by a train today and not have time to believe in Jesus at the end of your life. So it's stupid just to say, I want to do the sinning in my life, and then to to think you'll have a deathbed confession. You don't know that. So that's that's such a dumb idea, number one. Secondly, even if you could know that, living for Jesus and with Jesus is the abundant life that he promises. So what you're doing is you're saying, I want to trade in living a life where I get to do what I want to do, which is lesser, which isn't joy-filled, which isn't abundant, which goes against how God designed you to be, which is like putting diesel fuel into a regular unleaded car. It's a bad idea. You won't run right, and you might be making your own decisions, but it's not healthy for you. Mm -hmm. So I care about people's health, and I care about an abundant life, and I want you to have joy. So that's just a a stupid idea. It's just dumb to say that. The other thing is, and, and even a lot of Christians don't talk about this, Janelle, but the Bible over and over and over promises rewards to Christians who live a life of faithfulness. And a reward's not something that everybody automatically gets. God is not into participation trophies at T-ball, right? Where everybody's a winner and we don't keep score. God tells us that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, and that we will be rewarded based on what we did in our bodies, whether good or bad. 
this isn't the great white throne judgment. That's for all non-believers. This is the Bema seat judgment, which is only for believers. And that's when we'll get our evaluation for how we lived our lives from Jesus. And if we live a good life and we're overcomers, like Revelation talks about, we get different rewards. We can be a pillar in the temple of God, you know, a prominent person in the temple in the New Jerusalem. We can have a white stone, which is like a ticket to the banquet with our name on it. That's just a unique, special name between us and Jesus. We can get the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, right? Paul talks about this. He says, I have fought the good race. I have run well. And now that I've done that, is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's not saying now I've earned going to heaven. He would be appalled at that. No, it's by grace. But since I lived a faithful life, there's reward in heaven. There's position in heaven. And so I would tell people, man, you are you could totally get saved and have entrance into the kingdom. But do you want to just get in or do you want to inherit the kingdom? Do you want to be a garbage collector in the kingdom or do you want to be ruling over cities like Jesus says we can if we're faithful? Do you want to be called well done, good and faithful servant or do you want him to say you wicked and lazy slave? Like what what do you want, you know, for your eternal life? So getting into heaven or not is all based on what Jesus did and whether we trust it. It is simple, but significance in heaven and reward and living a thank you life towards our creator and towards our savior, man, that's immensely important. And what we do right now does count forever. But I think so many people, including Christians, think that this whole thing is just about getting into heaven. Uh, that's part of it. But there's a lot more to be had once we're there. So those are some of the reasons I think that's just it's so stupid to say, well, I'll just sin and do whatever I want. And then uh, I'll accept Jesus on my deathbed. Yeah. All right. Well, what about somebody who says, I'll accept Jesus now, but I mean, because of what he's done and because this is all um, based on him and not me, I can continue doing what I want. You know, I was just talking, yeah. Gaia and I were just recording, you know, and she's like, well, what if I don't agree with some of this stuff in the Bible? Like, yeah, I like Jesus, but I don't like all these rules that I see mm -hmm. that I don't think uh, apply to today or shouldn't apply. Um, yeah, well, what you're saying at that point is I believe in Jesus to get me into heaven, but I don't trust that he cares about my well-being right now, hmm. which is kind of a, a weird thing to think. But if you're saying I don't agree with these rules or these things, then you're saying Jesus got it wrong. And if that's the case, how do you know that he got it right when it came to saving you? It just seems like a real slippery slope to uh, insecurity and yeah. not knowing where I'm going to go when I die. But if I can trust him with my eternal life, I, why can't I trust him with my sexual life or with my thought life or with my attitudes or with, right? I mean, it just, if, if I can trust him with that, which is of utmost importance, why can't I trust him with all these things in the here and now? Um, logically, I think you can't get out of it, but I know emotionally and volitionally, it's hard sometimes because- we have sin and I want to do what I want to do. But I, I just think it's kind of a it's kind of an illogical position to hold. But I would say that as a Christian, you can be an idiot and still go to heaven when you die. Um, I think that that's uh, clear from scripture. I think that there's a ton of examples of that. You look at Solomon. Is Solomon in heaven? I think so. I think it's really hard to believe that a guy who wrote a lot of the Old Testament isn't in heaven. Mm -hmm. And yet he fell away at the end of his life and he he worshiped other gods and sacrificed babies and, and, and married hundreds of women that led his heart astray, even when God told him not to do that. 
He met God twice. Remember that? Solomon saw God twice. I haven't seen God. I haven't hung out with the angel of the Lord like Solomon did. And he still didn't care. The wisest guy who ever lived still chose to go against it. Is he in heaven? I think so. What about Samson? I, I read Judges and I don't see Samson do anything good. I don't know how you read it, but I read it. I'm like, this guy's a mess. He's always disobeying. And then yet you get to Hebrews and it says he he was a man of faith. He's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. How? Like this guy was a mess. You, you read about Lot, right? You think about him. That guy didn't do anything good. Incest, all of this terrible stuff. And yet Hebrews says he was righteous. Wow, that is that is amazing grace, right? And that's what God, I think, gives to everybody who will trust in what he did. It's not dependent on our works. It's dependent on Jesus' work. And if he covers me, I'm in. And if I'm born again, I can't get out of it. And uh, that's what I find so assuring about it is he really does it all. And out of a response to that, I should live a life of thank you. I should live a life of gratitude. I should live a life of wanting to serve and help other people see this God who just wastes his love on us. Mm. What do you do then with the most terrifying passage of scripture, according to Francis Chan <laughs> and some yeah. other theologians? I think it's Matthew chapter six, uh, mm. where Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. And also many on that day, I think he's talking about judgment day, will say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, look at all these things we did in your name. And he says, yeah. away from me, I never knew you. Yeah, so <clears throat> this is important. Um, first of all, um, the sheep and the goat, you got it. When's the sheep and the goat judgment? That's after uh, the, the tribulation, right? Mm -hmm. Some say it's after the millennium, some not. So I don't think this applies to anybody who's living right now. That's a Christian. Mm -hmm. That's important. Secondly, let's really look at what he says, because I have heard people misquote this to me my entire life. And if we just read the words of Jesus, then I think it really adds some uh, clarity to what he's talking about. So this is Matthew 6. Do you know what the verses are? I'm trying to scan it real quick. <laughs> no, but am I right? Is it Matthew 6? I could be wrong. I, I think you're right. I don't know. I'm looking through Matthew 6. It's all red letters, so that's where it gets hard to to yeah. see because i do want to read it yeah, um yeah, because yeah. that's that's important for for this uh for Let this passage see. no it wasn't in my notes it was just a spontaneous question matthew no, chapter that's good. seven that's good. i think matthew okay, seven, seven. Twenty one. Uh, maybe starting all right so let's so this is a sermon on the mount right um this is yeah this is great okay so he says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter it. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. All right, Janelle. So this is how I've heard a lot of pastors and theologians say what this means. They say, see, that should scare you, Janelle, because you might think you're a Christian, but then you're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to say, I don't even know you. So you better live a life worthy of the calling. You better perform well. You better do good works. That, yes, that's, I've heard it. That's I've I heard hear. it the same way. Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> that's not what it says. <laughs> what does he say on that day? There's going to be a lot of people who come to me and say, Lord, sir, 
right? And they're going to say, look at all the work we did. Look at all the prophesying. Look at all the demons. Look at all the miracles. And Jesus isn't saying that they actually did those things. He's just saying, this is what they're going to say to me. Look at all of the work we did in your name. And then he's going to look at them and say, it wasn't about good works. It was about trusting in me. I don't know you. I feel like this passage is completely opposite of what people try to make it mean. He's claiming it's not about your good works. That can't get you into heaven. And I, I clearly agree with that. In Revelation, Jesus opens up all the books of everyone's works, right? At the end of time, at the great white throne. And he says, okay, you want to talk about your works? Let's look at it. You didn't measure up. And unfortunately, you didn't trust in me. Your name's not in the book of life. And so you're cast out. This, this passage, you know, <laughs> I've, I've talked to so many people about this because they act like this is a proof text to their position. It's not. This is a proof text to the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's not about works. It's about believing in Jesus. Now, the question becomes, what is the will of the Father, mm -hmm. right? Because he says, everyone who does the will of my Father will, uh, how does he put it? I want to look at this real quick. Not everyone who says to me, but not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter it. Well, what's the will of the Father? That all should come it, to him. <laughs> yeah. And isn't it that to believe the Son? I think it's just a couple chapters later. Let me look this up. Of my Father is that we would believe in the one whom he sent. Isn't that what it says? In Matthew 7, no, we're in 721. Where is it? Oh, it's in John 6. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Mm. Yeah, that's the gospel. It's not about works. It's about belief in Jesus. And so I think this passage, you, you know, I, I respect Francis Chan about a lot of things, but he got it wrong. Like, that's just bad exegesis. That's not what the passage says. These people, I think these are Mormons mm -hmm. who are going to be standing in front of Jesus with their green aprons on that they all get buried in because it, it's that's what covers their sin. Oh. And they're going to say, look at all the work I did. I did temple work for you. I got baptized for the dead for you. I gave religiously for you. And he's going to say, I don't know you. Mm -hmm. I think this is Muslims who are going to come before him. The prophet, like, remember all the work I did in the name of Islam, in the name of Allah. And he says, I didn't know you. This is the claim of every non-believer, isn't it? Whenever you ask somebody who's not a believer why they should go to heaven, they'll say, well, because I'm a pretty good person. I've done some nice things. Well, that's not what gets us there. And so I I don't know. What do you think about that? Am I making this up or is this what it says? Robbie, I think you're right on. I think you're right on. And I think I, I appreciate that perspective. I haven't heard that before. I I mean, I do. I went through a whole season in my life where, um, you know, Crazy Love and the ministry of Francis Chan really, really helped me, you know, my own faith yes. journey. That was years ago. But I mean, it's it still was very impactful. And I remember him, you know, preaching about that passage and just being like, so, you know, and, and it brought back memories of my childhood. And actually, my, one of my sons is very similar. Um, sometimes, and he's a young teenager, he'll just say, you know, I'm, I'm scared about my salvation. Sure. And I think um, sometimes I'll just tell him the fact that you're nervous about that 
probably means you, you don't need to be worried about it. Yes, I say that all the time. Because if you weren't safe, you wouldn't care. No, because you know that it's Jesus and nothing else, you know? Yes. Um, but We I, only worry about things that are important to us. Yeah. I worry about my kids. I don't worry about kids across the street I don't know. Right. The right. fact that I'm worried about my salvation proves that I'm I'm saved because I'm stressed about it. If you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't even care. It wouldn't even cross your mind, you know? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. When people obsess about it, it's uh it's because of bad theology, but also it's because they actually care and they yeah. want to go to heaven. I want to ask a couple final questions because I know we're running out of time here. But sure. for somebody listening who may be it's like I was when I was younger. Maybe I still have these issues. I don't know. And then, uh, you know, my son, what is the evidence of truly putting your trust in Christ? Yeah. Well, Jesus in the Gospel of John uh, over and over and over and over again tells us. And I love the Gospel of John because it is the only New Testament book that we know that's clearly written with evangelism in mind. Uh, the thesis statement of John is in is in John 20, and he says Jesus did many other things, right? But we can't write them all down because if we if we tried to, there's not enough books. And then he says, but these miracles, these were written down so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, and by believing, you'll have life in His name. So the thesis statement of the Gospel of John is that this is an evangelistic book. I'm trying to compel you to believe in Jesus, right? So it's not written necessarily to Christians. It's written to non-Christians. And so with that, you know, in that book, Jesus says the word believe 95 times. 95 times. And Janelle, do you know what's really creepy? Do you know that the word repentance isn't used one time in the Gospel of John? Not one time. Is that weird? <laughs> Does he say turn? <laughs> <laughs> no. What does this was interesting. And we know we know John uses the word because he uses it in in the epistles and he uses it in Revelation. So it's not like he didn't know what the word was. It's intentionally left out of the gospel because belief in Jesus is how we receive his saving work. Mm. It's about belief. Pistuo, um, pistis, faith, believe, right? They come from the same root word. And Jesus clearly says it. And again, it's such a famous passage, but it's so true. John 3, 16. God really loves the whole world, every single person, not just some, not just his elect. He really loves everybody. That he proves it by sending his son to die so that ever, whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. Mm. He says the same thing to Mary, right? When, when Lazarus is dead. He, he talks to her about the resurrection and she's, yeah, I believe in the end, you know, my brother will rise. And then he says, do you believe in me, Mary? Do you believe that I am the one? And she says, yeah, I believe that, right? That's, I mean, that's the gospel over and over and over all throughout John. We are giving clear, definitive um, evidence as to what God requires of us. That's where in John 6, where, where he says, what is the will of my father? that you believe in the one whom he sent and by believing have life in his name. And then he says, and I'll raise you up on the last day. And my father, who's greater than I, he won't let you out of his hand. Like, I mean, you have all of that. Like, this is the book on how you get saved. So what you have to do to get saved is believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he took on your punishment and that by trusting in his provision of that, you are now qualified for entrance into heaven, not because of any work you've done, but because of all the work that he did. It is a gift. 
It's grace. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's unworked for. It's unmerited. And you just have to receive it by trusting that he did it for you. It is the it is the most free thing ever. And that's why people are skeptical of it because nothing's free. This one actually is. This one actually is because uh, I can't do anything to earn it. Yeah. I'm I'm terrible. I can't pay for it. I can't have a good church attendance. I can't have a good thought life. I can't do anything. Jesus' Jesus's brother James, remember what he says in James 1? He says, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles on one point, he's guilty of the whole thing. Mm. Well, then who can who can keep it? Nobody. That's the point. Jesus kept it, and we can have his righteousness applied to our screwed up lives if we trust in what he did. That's it. It's uh, simple and it's profound and it's real difficult for people to believe because they want to contribute something. And to humble yourself and say, I bring nothing to the table is hard. Wow. Robbie Lashua, this has been an incredible conversation. I am going to reach out to Stand Reason and ask for you to come back on because now <laughs> you've opened up this can of worms. I feel like I have all these follow-up questions I need to ask you. I can't ask them right now. I also am thinking of some people that I'd love to be present for a follow-up conversation. But I will ask you this final question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Okay. Um, the Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Uh, real is an acronym for those things. Restoration, okay. eternity, authenticity, and love. Of those four gifts that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ, and of course there's many others, which one stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? restoration, eternity, authenticity, or love? I think authenticity is something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and it's kind of weird, but like, um, and, and not like I have a handle on all the other ones. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying <laughs> authenticity is something I've been thinking about. And, and I mean it in this sense, like, because I'm such a broken, jacked up, sinful human being, like all of us, who is my authentic self, right? And I, I can't identify in my brokenness because I'm not my broken. I'm not my evil. I'm not my lack of what I am. I'm what I am, right? But so much of who I actually am and who God created to me is just messed up and broken. And I've got all these masks on. And I think often about, you know, like what what are people's personas if nothing but to protect me from others i want people to think i'm cool so i talk a certain way or i act a certain way or gesture a certain way and there's so many of these things i've picked up through my whole life that i probably am not even aware of all of the layers of inauthenticity that i've piled on myself and one of the things i am so looking forward to about heaven is that for the first time in my life i'll be able to know who i am because I won't have all of these masks and personas and protection from the world uh, raised in my life. I'll be able to have all my defenses drop and be fully known is what scripture talks about. And not only that, but every person I care about in this life that I know, I'll be able to know who they actually are because that'll all be dropped from them. And I'll be able to let them know who I really am for the first time. So you wanna talk about moving towards authenticity. Um, the only way that can happen is if our sin is completely removed and we're fixed and we don't have broken anymore. And uh, I'm looking forward to that day of being really who I am. And honestly, like for the first time in my life, knowing 
<laughs> who I actually am completely, right? I think we get glimpses and I think we know things and God's good and reveals it, but it won't be until that day when all the sin and all the corruption is gone that I can be truly authentic. So I want to be authentic now, but I have no idea how to do that. And so I'm waiting for that day when we're in heaven. Uh, I love that. I love all the different answers to that question and it's never the same. Um, but I love that answer. Mm. Robbie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks uh, for having me. This yeah, is great. Yeah. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the finding something real podcast friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.